Peach, and PM Press. For more information or advanced tickets, call 650-326-8837 or visit www.peaceandjustice.org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Stay tuned. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Fred Ebbs, Overture to the Popular American Stage Musical Cabaret, based on Christopher Isherwood's Berlin Stories. And to celebrate Gay Pride Month, Mr. Isherwood is the subject for this week's From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archive's weekly program that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. Today we will hear a number of rare recordings of Mr. Isherwood, including a play written by Isherwood in W.H. Auden in Nightwood, was born in England in 1904, came to the U.S. in 1939, and lived lived in Santa Monica from then until his death in 1986. His literary career began in 1928 with the publication of his first novel, All the Conspirators, and he's probably best known for the Berlin stories, stories that fictionalize his life in pre-World War II Berlin and that were adapted as the stage play I Am a Camera and the popular musical Cabaret. Here is Sue Hodson, curator of literary manuscripts at the Huntington Library, home to the Christopher Isherwood Papers. Basically, I think he, he became more open over time in his sexuality and the way he portrays it in his books. It's really veiled in the Berlin stories. Hmm. Um, it's possible to read the Berlin stories and not really so much recognize that the character is a gay man and that it's written by a gay author. You can do that. I mean, I think the clues are definitely there. But if you're not really watching for them, people can read it, and, and there's some ambiguity there. In his later books, I think it's quite clear that his protagonist is gay, and it's a gay world in which he is circulating. So I think that, that's been a, a great and obvious change in his writing. I would also say that that, that methodical patience with which he approached his writing was typical of his entire writing career that didn't change um the way he approached his writing and the craft was constant throughout in 1937 during the rise of the third reich and fascism in germany christopher isherwood along with wh auden wrote the tragic play the ascent of f6 the play tells the story of Michael Ransom, a climber who, against his better judgment, accepts the offer of the British press and government to sponsor an expedition to the peak of F6, a mountain on the border of a British colony, and a colony of the fictional country of Ostnia. Ransom is destroyed by his haste to complete the expedition ahead of the Ostnian climbers. What we have to play for you today is extraordinary. On October 5, 1962, Christopher Isherwood and W.H. Auden adapted the play for radio. Here is Christopher Isherwood performing as the abbot, speaking to the leader of the Doomed Mountain Expedition. May we cease from our ignorance and find the end of sorrow. I hope everything has been arranged to your satisfaction, Mr. Ransom. It is perfect. I am glad. Please be seated. Will you do me the honor of taking a glass of wine with me? 
In these mountains, I fear we can offer but poor hospitality. But I think you will find this wine not totally unworthy of your palate. John. Your health, Mr. Ransom. Now tell me, you wish to start soon on your ascension of our mountain? Tomorrow. You know the legend. I have read the Book of the Dead. Such interest, Mr. Ransom, is uncommon in one of your race. In that case, you will have comprehended the meaning of the ceremony that was performed this evening out in the courtyard. The office for the souls of the dead and the placation of the demon. I'm afraid that you, with your Western civilization, must consider us here excessively superstitious. No, you need not contradict me out of politeness. I understand. You see the painted mask and the horns and the eyes of fire, and you think this demon is only a bogey that nurses use to frighten their children. I have outgrown such nonsense. It is fit only for ignorant monks and peasants. With our factory chimneys and our furnaces and our locomotives, we have banished these fairy tales. I shall climb the mountain and I shall see nothing. But you would be wrong. The peasants, as you surmise rightly, are simple and uneducated. So their vision is simple and uneducated. They see the truth as a crude and colored picture. Perhaps for that reason, they see it more clearly than you or I, for it is a picture of the truth. The demon is real. Only his ministry and his visitation are unique for every nature. To the complicated and sensitive, like yourself, Mr. Ransom, his disguises are more subtle. He is, what shall I say, the formless terror in the dream, the stooping shadow that withdraws itself as you wake in the half-dawn. You have heard his gnashing accusations in the high fever at a very great distance. You have felt his presence in the sinister contours of a valley or the sudden hostility of a copse or the choking apprehension that fills you unaccountably in the middle of the most intimate dinner party. I did you an injustice just now when I said that you expected to see nothing on the mountain. You do expect to see something. That is why you are intending to climb it. You do not make that foolish, that terrible mistake so common among your fellow countrymen of imagining that it is fortunate to be alive. No. You know as I do that life is evil. You have conquered the first temptation of the demon, which is to blind man to his existence. But that victory exposes you to a second and infinitely more dangerous temptation, the temptation of pity, the temptation to overcome the demon by will. Mr. Ransom, I think I understand your temptation. You wish to conquer the demon and then to save mankind. Am I right?
So, you know of my vision in the crystal. Ah, you saw it there too. That is not strange. For all men see reflected there some fragment of their nature and glimpse a knowledge of those forces by whose free operation the future is forecast and limited. That's not supernatural. Nothing is revealed but what we have hidden from ourselves. The treasure we have buried and accursed. Your temptation, Mr. Ransom, is written in your face. You know your powers and your intelligence. You could ask the world to follow you, and it would serve you with blind obedience. For most men long to be delivered from the terror of thinking and feeling for themselves. And yours is the nature to which those are always attracted in whom the desire for devotion and self-immolation is strongest. And you would do them much good. Because men desire evil, they must be governed by those who understand the corruption of their hearts and can set bounds to it. As long as the world endures, there must be order, there must be government. For by the very operation of their duty, however excellent, they themselves are destroyed. For you can only rule men by appealing to their fear and their lust. Government requires the exercise of the human will. And the human will is from the demon. Supposing you are right. Supposing I abandon the mountain. And what shall I do? Return to England and become a farm laborer or a factory hand? You've gone too far for that. Well, then. There is an alternative, Mr. Ransom, and I offer it you. What? To remain here and make the complete abnegation of the will. And that means? You saw the corpse in the procession? In the course of your studies, you have become acquainted, no doubt, with the mysteries of the rites of Chud, celebrant withdraws to a wild and lonely spot, and there the corpse is divided and its limbs scattered. The celebrant, sounding on his bone trumpet, summons the gluttonous demons of the air to their appointed feast. At this moment, there issues from the crown of his head a terrible goddess, and this goddess is his will, and she is armed with a sword. And as the ghouls of the mountain and of the sky and of the waters under the glacier assemble to partake of the banquet, the goddess with her sword cuts off the limbs of the celebrant's esoteric body, scatters them, and apportions his entrails among the demon guests. And the celebrant must wish them good appetite, urging them to devour every morsel. These rites, Mr. Ransom, are so terrible that frequently the novices who witness them foam at the mouth or become unconscious or fall dead where they stand. 
And yet, so tedious is the path that leads us to perfection, that when all these rites have been accomplished, the process of self-surrender can hardly be said to have begun. Well, Mr. Ransom, I must leave you now. Do not make up your mind at once. Think my proposal over. Before I go, may I ask you a question? As abbot, you rule this monastery. That's a wise observation. Mr. Ransom, I am going to tell you a secret which I have never told a living soul. We have spoken of your temptation. I am now going to tell you of mine. Sometimes, when I am tired or ill, I am subject to very strange attacks. They come without warning, in the middle of the night, in the noon siesta, even during the observance of the most sacred religious rites. Sometimes they come frequently. Sometimes they do not occur for months or even years at a time. And when they come, I am filled with an intoxicating excitement so that my hand trembles and all the hairs on my body bristle. Here again is Sue Hodson, curator of literary manuscripts at the Huntington Library, home to the Christopher Isherwood Papers. The ascent of F6 comes from the period of time in the 1930s when Isherwood and Auden were, in, a, in almost a formal sense, uh, a collaboration team. They were producing dramas especially together. They were working together, um, um, deriving more benefit from the thinking and the approach of one another. And they were setting out to do nothing less than completely transform um, British literature in the 20th century. Um, and they were known throughout Europe and Britain as as the most exciting young authors, along with Stephen Spender. So, uh, they, they were, the three were viewed as authors that everyone should be watching because they were going to transform the 20th century uh, literature. And um, certainly... They set out to do it. Ishuan and Auden um, did all sorts of experimental things in their plays, including the ascent of F6. Um, they wrote in verse. Um, they they had characters behaving and as the actors behaving as as the characters in ways that that other dramas had not employed. So they were moving. They were pushing pushing the outside of the envelope to try to make a new medium, a new genre, and they I think they succeeded. Well, let's take a listen to more of Christopher. Now, of course, there's no reason in the world why a writer should not participate in propaganda. That's to say, in trying to move uh, people along a certain course of action. But I think that when he does so, he must really try to keep uh, the difference between propaganda and art very, very clear in his mind. You see, the terrible thing about art, which is the search for significance in life, is that you may very well find that uh, the bad thing is more interesting and therefore more significant to you than the good thing. 
You write about a concentration camp from the point of view of political propaganda. There's absolutely no question about it. These people are behaving in a way which must be condemned 100%. And in propaganda, you are concerned, therefore, to list the crimes and, above all, the things done to the victims. But in art, you may very well say, yes, yes, the victims... The victims are not being particularly interesting at this moment. What is really terribly interesting to me is why anybody would make a lampshade out of human skin or do some other incredible horror, uh, the, the kind of behavior which is uh, characteristic of the sort of uh, psychotics who run these places. Or again, uh, the curious kind of apparently dry, uh, uh, bureaucratic man who gives these orders and remains an admirable family father and uh, a regular attendant uh, at divine service on Sundays. Uh, this gets to be so interesting that it is apt to deflect the artist uh, from the task of propaganda and quite rightly because it is interesting and uh, since everybody ever born is potentially the creature of art there's absolutely nothing uh, despite Life magazine to say that you shouldn't be uh, more interested in the man who runs the concentration camp than in one of the victims um, because writers make bad totalitarians, because even when they're laden with honors by the totalitarian state and created heroes of art and given free holidays uh, wherever it's nicest to have a free holiday, just because of that, um, such artists are very apt to feel guilty and in feeling guilty, um, they are moved to cover up their guilt feelings by attacking art itself and saying that propaganda is art and that the art which I have been characterizing, the art connected with being an outsider, is bourgeois formalism or escapism or decadence or any of the other rude words which are used to... Uh, attack such things when you don't feel good about it. Now, the culture in which we live has, I think, at present um, a kind of vice which, of course, is a great challenge to the artist and uh, in some ways, uh, to live in such a culture is uh, quite uh, exciting and challenging. The challenge is that we live in a culture, as many uh, social psychologists have observed, of blandness, of the rubbing off of sharp corners of smoothing things away, of using 
nicey nice phrases which conceal the acute painfulness of being alive which even at its most painful gives us its sharpest sense of beauty its sharpest sense of awareness and confers its greatest wisdom in exchange for this we have uh, all uh, the roundings of corners uh, which kind of soothe us into the world of the advertisements uh, so that we live in a kind of as-if culture of enjoying what is advertised to be enjoyed the other day a case arose in point which would sound quite grotesque in any culture but ours um, a friend was very sick indeed in hospital uh, the uh, a friend of his called to know what the news was the nurse said I'm afraid it isn't too good he said oh you mean the pains have started again and she said no he was buried this morning now we take this kind of thing as a matter of course and yet really it it chills the spine this kind of terrible blanketing of everything is not really merciful it's not in any sense desirable I think and I sincerely believe that art has a great function at the moment to pierce through this kind of complacency and to restate the very simple facts uh, of human experience and make us feel them and not gloss everything over in a famous scene in one of E.M. Forster's novels you'll probably recall the longest journey the boy says to this girl who has lost her lover you must mind you must mind because she seems to be freeze, uh, freezing in, in, into a sort of impassivity and this is a great human truth and this is I think one of the things that art is all about now this brings us um, pretty directly to a subject which has been uh, raised a great deal lately um, because we come on to the methods by which the artist uh, attempts to pierce through this um, integument of blandness um, one of the uh, uh, the most spoken of and um, noticed lately is of course um, the employment of so-called pornography now I should state here two things right away 
Um, I personally, uh, as uh, an enthusiast of civil liberties, am unconditionally opposed to interference with anything that anybody writes, whether I agree with it or not. Uh, I wouldn't ban Life magazine if I became <laughs> dictator. <laughs> but I don't think this is the whole of the answer by any means. If you're going to take uh, the attitude uh, that you uh, know what pornography is, then we must examine uh, what you think it is and see what it is. I can quite understand the simple position of saying that certain four-letter words are simply banned under all circumstances. This, as I say, offends my liberalism, but uh, at least it is perfectly coherent and understandable. When, however, people start saying, oh no, I don't mind that, but there's some difference between pornography and art. And that if the four-letter words are used artistically, then it's all right. And if the... I'm, uh, I'm saying here four-letter words uh, advisedly and uh, avoiding uh, the, the question, of course, of so-called pornographic scenes and actions because we can, I think think more simply on the basis of the words. Um, we say these words can be used artistically and then it's art. They're used inartistically and it's pornography. But after all, if one gets down to the crudest manifestation of so-called pornography, um, crude sentences describing actions which are sometimes um, written on walls, then we see that after all uh, this is simply a form of fantasy. And isn't fantasy art? And isn't perhaps pornography, when we don't like it, simply to be characterized as bad art? But certainly art of a kind I'm quite unable to see the, where the distinction falls between these two things. I therefore uh, respectfully suggest that all censorship uh, of this kind should cease forthwith. And I believe that there is a very, very strong aesthetic censorship and check, which will inevitably operate and does operate among the writers themselves. Because four-letter words are nothing else but like certain very vivid colors in the palette. You use them too much, you lose your effect. You lose all the, the balance, you lose all the, the, uh, uh, the artistic uh, interplay which is necessary for a work of art. And I submit that um, 
by and large, uh, the most um, restraining influence on the writers would be simply the fact that they found that uh, by firing so much ammunition, they produced no effect at all and found themselves without any ammunition left before the book was over. And then, of course, there is the always allowable and, after all, supreme censorship, which is the reader doesn't read the book. The only kind of censorship which one cannot object to, much as one hates them sometimes. <laughs> from the Vault, the series is broadcast from the Pacifica Radio Network with five stations in Berkeley, Los Angeles, New York City, Washington, D.C., Houston, Texas, and over 120 affiliates nationwide. This episode was produced by Brian DeShazer and Mark Torres, an executive produced by Pacifica Radio Archives and Brian DeShazer. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. For more information, call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. For more information about the Christopher Isherwood Papers, visit the Huntington Library at huntington.org, H-U-N-T-I-N-G-T-O-N.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the University of California Berkeley's Moffett Library, the Pacifica Foundation, and from contributions from Pacifica Station listeners. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Africa, to Asia, to Latin America, to your bedroom.